You're listening to a message from Christian Life Ministries in Coventry, a dynamic, growing church in the heart of the nation. We pray that God will speak to you through this word and impact your life for His glory. Well, friends, Jesus is alive. He was in the grave, but he's not anymore. What a glorious morning to be alive. What a great time to come to church, to worship with brothers and sisters, joining with hundreds of millions of believers right across the globe who today are meeting to remember that there's an empty grave and a risen Savior because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Today is a great day to be a Christian. I don't know if you can remember when you first understood that Jesus had risen from the dead. Or maybe the time that you were first impacted by the risen Jesus. I was reminded just a couple of weeks ago of something that happened when I was much, much younger that I had completely forgotten about. I was talking to Chelsea. She'd just been into a primary school. She'd been speaking to year one and two children about Easter taking in this brilliant prop. It had a cross and a tomb and a, a stone you could roll away, and there were kids rolling the stone away, learning about Jesus not staying in the tomb, which was great to hear about. Great job, Chelsea, and great job, Tony Williams, who made the prop. But what it did is it reminded me of a time in primary school. We've been learning an Easter song. There'd been a few Easter songs, and as part of this, there was one song that was a solo, and there was a boy called Thomas who sung it. I can't remember his surname, I couldn't pick him out of a lineup, but he had a beautiful voice. And the song expressed the story of one of the men on the road to Emmaus that we read of in Luke 24, whom Jesus, unrecognized to them, the risen Jesus, came and walked alongside them and unpacked the scriptures to them and explained why the Messiah had to die. And it talks about in scripture that they said, didn't our hearts burn within us? And something happened in that moment as a little girl, as I heard the song, whenever it was sung, something happened in my heart. I was moved by the resurrection of Jesus. I don't know if you can remember the first time you were impacted by the risen Jesus. I know many of us in the room will have moments like that, but perhaps you're here and you've never encountered the risen Jesus. Maybe you're joining us online. You're not even sure if you believe in the resurrection. Can I encourage you today, if that is you, to look into it, look into the historical evidence. There's a brilliant uh, book, Evidence That Demands a Verdict. There's also some YouTube videos by a guy called Josh and Sean McDowell, his son. And uh, it's just of critical importance that we understand the resurrection of Jesus because everything is different because of it. And whether you believe it or not yet, it is uncontested that that morning there was an empty tomb and the body was gone. If you read the biblical accounts, there were 12 separate appearances when Jesus appeared to an individual or a group. And at one time when he appeared to 500 people all at once. These were not, this was not visions, these were not ghosts, these were physical bodily appearances. Jesus uh, could be touched, he felt, he ate, he cooked breakfast. There's some of you, you've just tuned back in because I said the words, cook breakfast there. <laughs> I saw you, suddenly, the phone went down. Isn't it great we have a savior who cooks breakfast? When Jesus appeared, he had on his body the healed scars of crucifixion. You don't see those around very much. 
And if you read the New Testament account, then those appearances transformed the believers. It didn't just move their hearts. It didn't just impact them. But it totally changed them from being fearful, bedraggled, hiding, to being bold, miracle-working preachers who, with the help of the Holy Spirit, which we can't overestimate, started a church that still stands today and has impacted billions of people. And this morning, we're simply going to look in Scripture to help us understand why this is so central, so critical for us here in 2023. If you want uh, a title for the message, it is A Tale of Three Gardens. A Tale of Three Gardens. Growing up for me, Easter Day always began in the garden, which is an outdoor sort of a girl I loved. We always used to have an egg hunt in the garden. My parents had spent a few years living in North Carolina in the US before I was born, and I think if you've ever been there, egg hunts is a big deal. Uh, on Easter Day in the US. So it was a tradition that continued in my family. So it always began in the garden. I'm also, I remember as a child, both at school, I think sometimes at church, at home, sometimes we would make Easter gardens. You'd get stones, you'd get moss, you'd make crosses out of lollipop sticks, and you'd make an Easter garden. Anyone remember making one of those? Oh my goodness, we've missed a whole generation of people. Yeah, Debbie McNeely with me, Anna-Marie. I knew there would be some here. Easter gardens. The truth is that the garden is right at the heart of Easter. And I actually think there are three gardens that are right at the heart of Easter. And we're going to visit them this morning. Let's go first. We're going to read John chapter 19, 41. We're joining the story just after the death of Jesus. At the place where Jesus was crucified there was a garden. And in the garden, a new tomb in which no one had ever been laid. Because it was the Jewish day of preparation, and since the tomb was nearby, they laid Jesus there. Early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. So she came running to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one Jesus loved, and said, they've taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we don't know where they've put him. So Peter and the other disciple started for the tomb. Both were running, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. He bent over and looked in at the strips of linen lying there, but did not go in. Then Simon Peter came along behind him and went straight into the tomb. He saw the strips of linen lying there, as well as the cloth that had been wrapped around Jesus' head. The cloth was still lying in its place, separate from the linen. And finally, the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went inside. He saw and believed. They still did not understand from Scripture that Jesus had to rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to where they were staying. Now Mary stood outside the tomb crying, and as she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb and saw two angels in white seated where Jesus' body had been, one at the head and the other at the foot. And they asked her, woman, why are you crying? They've taken my Lord away, she said. I don't know where they've put him. At this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she didn't realize it was Jesus. And he asked her, woman, why are you crying? Who is it you're looking for? Thinking he was the gardener, she said, sir, if you've carried him away, tell me where you've put him, and I will get him. Jesus said to her, Mary. And she turned towards him and cried out in Aramaic, Rabbanai, which means teacher. Jesus said, do not hold on to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. Go instead to my brothers and tell them, I'm ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. 
And Mary Magdalene went to the disciples with the news, I have seen the Lord. And she told them that he had said these things to her. Well, in these verses, we meet the risen Jesus, and he's here in a garden. He'd been laid to rest in a tomb in a burial garden. But the story of what's unfolding, I think, actually started a long time before in another garden. So this morning's message is going to be a little bit like, I don't know if you've ever been somewhere rural and you see a sign that says, like, open garden tour. I think we're going to see a picture of one up on the screen. Sometimes for charity, people open up their gardens. You know, it's just their normal domestic garden, but they open up, you can pay a bit of money. I've put a sign there because I thought some of you might not believe that this actually happens. This does actually happen. You can go around and you can tour people's gardens. You can go and you can see what have they done with the place? What's growing here? What have they planted? What flowers have they got? What have they sown? What is growing here? And we're just going to visit three gardens. See what is planted there, what is growing there. And so the first garden we're going to visit this morning is the Garden of Eden. We read of it back in Genesis at the start of the Bible. It was a beautiful garden. It had been planted by God, and man had been put there. Probably you know the story. There were lots of trees. We get told they were pleasing to the eye and good for food. And there were two trees in the middle of the garden, important trees. One was the tree of life. One was the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And Adam was told he could eat from any tree, but not from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For he was told, when you eat from it, you will surely die. And probably we know what happens. A simple instruction given, a boundary, a point of obedience to the rule of God the maker. They're in this beautiful place, everything provided for, God himself walking with them in the cool of the day. Their access to this forbidden tree in the middle of the garden affirmed their free will, their choice to obey God or not. And tragically, they chose not. We know the story, don't we? Eve, tempted by the serpent who comes and questions, did God really say that? Did he really say you'd die? And when she answers that he did, he said, you won't, sir, you won't surely die. You'll get wisdom, he said. You'll become like God. You'll understand good from evil. And we know what happens. She looked at the apple, this beautiful, red, tempting-looking apple. And if you haven't had breakfast, that's going to look really good to you. And she ate it. And she took it and she gave some <clears throat> to Adam who also ate it. And in that moment of rebellion, of refusal of God's rule, what we might call sin, as they did their own will instead of God's will, everything changes. It's why that moment is referred to as the fall. Sin enters the world and every human being to be born since then is different because of it. And although Adam and Eve did not immediately die after eating the fruit... At that very point, death enters the world, and it is only a matter of time. I'm deeply conscious, as I even mention death entering the world, that for some of us, the mention of it is deeply painful because we've recently lost someone precious. I sat with someone just a couple of weeks ago, and we wept together at the pain of loss. This is the terrible fruit of that first garden. See, when we visit that garden, we see what was sown was rebellion against God, a choosing to go a different way. That's sin. And the fruit of it was death. It's left growing, left present. Romans 5 verse 12 puts it like this. Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man and death through sin, and in this way death came to all people because all sinned. 
And what unfolded from that point and from that garden was the story of humanity now living in a fallen state, closeness with God severed, a propensity to sin, an overwhelming pull to serve self and a fear of death. The seeds of sin and death planted in that first garden took root and spread through all humanity like dandelions in a waste ground that kind of make a network of roots underneath that ruins the growth and cultivation of anything desirable. Perhaps you've had that in your own garden. It's terrible when it happens. People were separate from God, doing their own thing, becoming increasingly evil. In fact, it's only three chapters from Genesis 3 at the fall to where we read in Genesis 6 that God observes the wickedness of the human race and that every inclination of the human heart was only evil all the time. Even as we read the pages of the Bible, we see selfishness and pride, pursuit of power, a desire to be like God, greed and lust that brings violence and abuse, injustice, oppression, exploitation. I wish these things were confined to a distant past, but our newsfeed tells us otherwise. Our experience tells us otherwise. And sadly, these things, they're still common at varying levels in fallen mankind, the fruit of that first garden, Eden, where rebellion was sown, and in some ways is still growing, still present in every human heart, perhaps even a little bit in you and in me here in church on Easter Sunday. Our core may be some desire still to reject God and his rule, to choose my will rather than his, to want to be like God rather than to be obedient to God gone very quiet in the room. You see, the visit to that first garden, as beautiful and perfect as it was, when we leave it, we leave it with humanity lost, broken, fallen, mortal, fearful, and dying. And we see the marks of that all around us and sometimes within us. That's the fruit of that first garden. But the good news is that we don't have to stay there. It isn't the only garden. Now, one aspect of the fruit of that garden was death and the fear of death. I know many of us fear death. In fact, in most of our cultures, we don't speak about it very much, perhaps because there's an ingrained fear of it. But the Bible tells us, Hebrews 2.15, that Jesus came to free those who all their lives were held in slavery by the fear of death. Now, I was surprised I'm blessed by a visit last year from a lady in our congregation who came to speak to me just ahead of us going on sabbatical. And she came to speak to me about her own funeral. She had found she had some health issues going on that meant she had come to understand that she may die suddenly. And she may die soon. She doesn't know when she might die. We know, none of us know that, do we? But she came to talk about her own funeral. Now, I'm familiar with talking to people about funeral plans. This is not uncommon. But I'd never have anybody before who came and said, I want to speak to you about my funeral. And she was able to talk without fear. Her faith in Jesus was real and tangible in the room. She was able to talk about the practicalities and arrangements so few people would be comfortable to talk like this. And the conversation was strangely refreshing. It was filled with grace. It was filled with faith. There was something very beautiful about it. It was rare. And I think I was tasting fruit from a different garden. Of course, the only way we can access this is through Jesus, through the Savior, the Son of Man, the Rabbi, Emmanuel, as he was called by the prophets, 
I know most of us in the room and probably most of us joining us know him today, but maybe you're here or tuning in and you've never encountered him. This Jesus is God who took on flesh. He came as a baby. He walked in the dust of the earth in first century Palestine. He was fully God and yet fully man. And we have eyewitness accounts of his life and his teachings that have a super high level of historical reliability. And his life was not dominated by the fruit of that garden. His life was different. And he will bring us to our second garden. You see, he was different. He loved, he served, he healed, he gave. He wasn't trying to be like God or look like God. In fact, he was incredibly humble. He was the best ever storyteller. He was the most profound teacher. He taught truth, but he also said, I am the truth. He drew crowds of thousands. He raised the dead. He showed himself by his words and his actions to be the Messiah. He allowed his disciples to acknowledge him as that and call him that. And alongside that, he called out and challenged hypocrisy, injustice. It's why the religious teachers were so strongly opposed to him, wanted him dead. And of course, they worked with the Romans to bring him to crucifixion, as we remembered on Friday. And through that journey, there was another garden a place that Jesus often went with his followers. It was an olive grove, a garden called Gethsemane. And this is the second garden on our visit this morning. Gethsemane is a Greek word. It means oil press. The place where olives were put in the press and crushed to release their oil. And the night before Jesus' death, he goes there with his followers. We probably have this fresh in our memory from Friday he knows he's going to die. It's part of God's plan. It's what he came for. He's been sent by the Father to rescue and to redeem. But in the garden, Jesus is anguished, sorrowful, overwhelmed, wrestling. And he's saying, Father, would you take this cup from me if you're willing? This cup, it was the deserved death for those who reject and rebel against God. The cup of death, the fruit of sin from that first garden, which Jesus himself did not deserve. He's the only human actually to ever have lived this life out perfectly, which meant he alone could take the place of sinners. He alone was positioned to pay this debt that mankind owed. So he was there, he's poised to go to the cross, to bear our sin and shame and rubbish, to face God's judgment for it. It's a terrible prospect, and he's in anguish, and he's wrestling because he doesn't want to do it. We all know a little what it's like to wrestle over something you don't want to do. But I don't think any of us have faced anything like this. And in the midst of his wrestling and praying and sorrow and overwhelm, he says these words, yet not my will, but yours be done. Let not your will, my will, but yours be done. Generation after generation since that first garden had been unable to say that to Father God. You see, in our, our will, what we want is so strong, the desire for our own way. From the two-year-old who tantrums, from the moment they are developmentally mature enough to understand they have a will that is separate to their parents to the newly married couple who are arguing because they're learning to share their life with someone else, and guess what? They each came with their own will. It can be problematic, yeah? You see, the truth is none of us really want to defer to someone else's will, even when we love them more than anyone else in the world. Most of us fight for our own way. 
And so men and women had repeatedly chosen their own will over God's will. Living out the narrative of that first garden, displaying its fruit. And here is Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane sowing something different. Instead of rebellion, he sows submission, albeit in tears. Instead of my will, he says, your will, even though it cost him more than we'll ever understand. He is sowing in that moment, as a man on the earth, different seed into humanity's soil. No sin and rebellion here, but seeds of surrender and of submission to the Father's will. And he's wrestling. It's indescribably difficult. His friends have abandoned him, sleeping. But in this second garden, a different seed is sown, a life-giving seed. Although for Jesus, the fruit of this seed is suffering. It's in the same garden that Jesus is arrested. The crowd come. There's a bit of a scuffle. Someone loses an ear, as we know. It gets healed. It's like all in a day's work for Jesus. And he gets led off to this shambolic, illegal night trial. False witnesses, a string of injustices lead him to find himself in front of the Pilate Roman governor. And in seeking to satisfy the desires and the shouts of the crowd, Pilate capitulates and agrees for him to be crucified. And he's led out and hung on a cross to die. His followers generally nowhere to be seen, except his mother and some of the women. I know as I read the text that most of the women were called Mary. Have you ever wondered about this? Did you have to be called Mary to follow Jesus if you were a woman? Or was there just a lack of creativity around women's names? I do not know, but most of them were called Mary. And among them was Mary Magdalene. As Jesus is there, he faces the death we deserve. He carries our sin and guilt and shame and brokenness. He drinks the cup. What he committed to in the darkness of the garden, he walks out in the cold light of day, even to the point of death. Second garden is a powerful garden. And as we've read this morning, there's a third garden. You see, Jesus' body, just in the verses before the ones we read today, his body is requested and taken down by Joseph Arimathea, accompanied by Nicodemus. I love it that Nicodemus is involved here, but I need to not get sidetracked on that. That's a message for another day. Jesus' body is laid in a new tomb in this burial garden, garden number three. It's right by the place of the crucifixion. And there he lay, throughout the Passover Sabbath Saturday, while worshippers went to the, te to the temple wondering why the curtain was torn in two. In John's account, we return to that garden early on the first day of the week, and we find Mary Magdalene going to the tomb, finding the stone removed, and she runs and tells Peter and John, she's assuming that because the stone isn't there, the body's been stolen, the grave has been desecrated, few things could be more distressing two days after losing someone you love. And Peter and John run to the tomb. There's quite a lot of running in this chapter. John outruns Peter. He's obviously not quite as fit. John has a look in the grave but doesn't go in. And then true to form for Peter, as you might expect, he comes, he runs straight in. No stopping to think, no reflecting. I'm just going straight in. Perhaps he also felt because he'd been outrun, he just wanted to get right in there first. And it's clear that neither Peter nor Mary were expecting a risen Jesus that morning. They were expecting to see the buried body of their dead rabbi. And it's only John, we're told, saw something and believed. You see, for those who had been followers of Jesus, those who'd considered him to be the Messiah, 
those to whom he tried to explain what was going to happen, for them, the very fact that Jesus had been crucified had brought everything into question. You see, we read about Easter Sunday just moments after reading about Good Friday. They didn't have the text. It was in real time, and they were interpreting what they were seeing and experiencing. And for them, the Messiah couldn't die like this. Mosaic law taught them, cursed is a man who who is hanged on a tree, or on a pole, as it says. You see, to be crucified was on a par with this. It was to be cursed, rejected by God. How could God's chosen one be cursed? You couldn't be afflicted in this way and so clearly forsaken by God and still carry on being considered to be the much-loved Son of God. Whatever you'd heard rumble in the sky from heaven, it was totally incongruent for the disciples. And they would be wrestling internally, feeling like they needed to come to terms with the fact that everything they'd understood was wrong. Because something like this couldn't happen to the Christ who was favored by God. Surely God would not allow that. Their faith must have been at an all-time low. The questions, the pain, the fear, the grief, overwhelming. Everything had been brought into question by the way that Jesus died. No one was heading to the garden to see if Jesus might have risen. And even at the sight of the empty tomb, only John saw something that caused him to believe. And I wonder if for him, maybe he'd he'd been at the tomb of Lazarus, he'd seen a pile of grave clothes before. And perhaps as he saw that in the tomb that day, it reminded him of another time. I've seen that before. You only get a pile of grave clothes like that when there's been a resurrection. Purely my conjecture. But we come back, we find Mary alone in the garden. Peter and John, they return to where they're staying, and she's weeping outside the tomb in her grief and distress. She doesn't clock that there's angels present. It doesn't occur to her there might have been heavenly intervention. She's not come for a miracle. She's come for a body. She's talking with these heavenly visitors and becomes aware that there's someone else in the garden behind her, and she turns, she assumes... It's the gardener, but it is in fact Jesus, but she doesn't recognize him until he calls her by name. Mary, Mary. At the sound of him speaking her name, she recognizes him. She calls out my teacher. And Jesus says these important words to her. He says, go, he says, don't hold on to me, but go and tell my brothers that I'm ascending to my father and your father, my God and your God. Mary is becoming the witness who gets sent to tell the others that Jesus is risen. It's amazing that Jesus chooses a woman at this point whose testimony would not have stood in a court of law. He's so affirming of her as he trusts her with the message that Jesus is alive. Here in the third garden, without this third garden, without the resurrection, the work of the cross left unanswered questions for the disciples and for us. Questions about Jesus, questions about his relationship with the Father, who he really was. Was he the Son of God? Was he loved by God? Was he accepted? Did he have a relationship with him? Was he favored? Because if he was not, he could not help us or reconcile us to him. The resurrection of Jesus was critically important. Romans 1, 3 to 4 in the message puts it like this. His unique identity as the Son of God was shown by the Spirit when Jesus was raised from the dead, setting him apart 
as the Messiah, our master. So as the resurrected Jesus appears to and speaks to Mary in the garden, both Jesus' identity as the Son of God and the power of the finished work of the cross are being revealed. As he comes as the risen Jesus, he's saying, yes, on the cross he had been separated, cut off from the Father as he bore our sins in his body. But his resurrection proves that he was not disowned. It was not a situation that continued, but rather his father is affirming him by raising him from the dead and affirming that he's not only his father, but also now our father. His separation purchased our welcome, our acceptance, our adoption. So Jesus says to Mary in the garden, I'm returning to my father and your father. Yes, he had been judged by God, cursed on the cross. As Galatians 3.13 puts it, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. He was cursed by God. He was judged, rejected, forsaken by him on the cross. His resurrection, though, proves his vindication. It proves that he was fully accepted and affirmed by God, for God, by his power, brought him back, that he would be vindicated. And of course, not just his vindication, but our vindication, our acceptance, our affirmation. His being cursed redeemed us, bore us that we might be blessed. And so Jesus says to Mary in that garden, I'm going to my God and your God. If the band want to come, and join me. Yeah, it's true. He had died and he had been dead. But now he is raised to life in the power of a bodily resurrection that will never die. Jesus is the first fruits of all those who will rise from the dead. His bodily resurrection is the sign and the guarantee of our resurrection to eternal life. And for all those who are in Christ, what was sown in the third garden was the body of Jesus himself like a seed in the ground that dies but produces many seeds. The fruit of this garden is life, eternal life for many, the bringing of many sons and daughters to glory. I know it's true we've not yet reached the day when everyone is resurrected. That will come at the end. And yes, there is still loss, there is still mourning, but make no mistake, death has been served its notice. It has been served notice. It is running out of time. And we no longer have to live and die in the fruit of the Garden of Eden because what happened in the other gardens has opened up a different way. The resurrection, friends, it is not a reversal of the defeat of the cross. It is way more than that. It is the fruit and the disclosure of the victory of the cross. It's the seal of the Father on all that has been happening. And so as Mary receives this declaration in the garden, that Jesus is risen. It's clearing up all the questions about his identity, his standing with the Father. But this amazing phrase, I'm going to my Father and your Father. My God and your God, he's saying something. No, 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 everything has changed. Everything is fundamentally different in this moment. We cannot overestimate the significance of it. While Mary mistook Jesus for the gardener, What's happening here in the garden is that Jesus has changed the soil of humanity and what it produces 
in him has shifted forever. No wonder the earth shook when he was on the cross. It was truly a groundbreaking moment as the seed and the fruit of that first garden, Eden, were expunged out of it. Paul writes in Romans 5, I won't read it just to save us a few moments. If the seed of Adam's choices in the garden of Eden impacted every person who has ever lived, how much more the seed of Jesus' choice in the garden of Gethsemane and its outworking on the cross, his own body sown into the ground as a different seed, affirmed in the resurrection in that final garden. It has the power to change what's in the soil and what grows in your life, in my life, here, now, today. Friends, we no longer have to live from an old pattern, just outworking the seed and the fruit of Eden. He bore your sin so you can be forgiven. He was wounded so you can be healed. He was separated so that you can be welcomed home. He was rejected so that you can be accepted. He was bound so that you can be free. And he died so that you could live. He was mocked so that you could be dignified. And he was sold so that you could be ransomed. He was humiliated so that his grace could cover your shame. And he was punished so that you would have peace. He was hated so that you could be loved. He was anguished so that you could be comforted. And he wept so you could have joy. And he died so you would have life forever. This is the different seed. And this is the fruit we can live in. And I know we all come with different needs this morning. But friends, we need the resurrected life of Jesus. And it's here for us through his spirit. And if you know, there's so many different ways this expresses. Some of us, we need comfort. We need joy. We need peace. We need him to break off of us the fear of death. We need him to come and do something afresh and empower our lives. Some of us, we need him just to put hope into our hearts again. But this is what he does because he's alive and he's risen. And by his spirit, it's what he comes to infuse into your life. Maybe we just need his power again to help us break free from some habits of sin. Maybe we need healing in our body. But I'm going to pray in a moment just once again for the Holy Spirit to come and bring the resurrected Jesus and his power into our lives. And if you know you want to receive from him this morning, whatever it is, I just invite you simply to stand to your feet and we will pray before we worship and lift him up again. Father, we come to you today. It's hard to fully get our heads around the magnitude of what you have done for us, the majesty of who you are, and the depths of love and sacrifice of what you've done for us. But we read it and we believe it. And Father, we come with hungry hearts again today, battered by the effects of Eden, but grateful that it doesn't have the last word. And we come as we are today and ask that by your Holy Spirit, you would flood our hearts and lives again with the resurrection power of Jesus Christ. Please, would you flood hearts with hope this morning? Would you touch hearts with your power? Would you break off burdens? of anxiety, 
of sin. Break off burdens of fear. Lord, where there's a fear of death, would you break it off your people? That we might just look into your eyes, Jesus, because you're going to just lead us through death and out the other side because it's what you did. Holy Spirit, would you bring the resurrection of power of Jesus to lift off shame today, to lift off guilt, and to bring your life. Let your fruit grow fresh in our hearts and lives. We pray for healing where it's needed in bodies. This same power, the mighty power that you exerted in Christ when you raised him from the dead. Holy Spirit, we welcome you here into our hearts and our lives. We need you. Help us to keep living out of this seed, out of this power, empowered by you, Spirit of God, to bear fruit that gives you glory and honor. And we give you praise and thanks. Amen.